Well, greetings and welcome to The Dividing Line. It would be good if I, uh, I don't even know how it did that. <laughs> Rich and I had tested everything, and then somehow it switched audio output before we got started again. I, I, I don't know. It's, uh, uh, we've come up with various theories over the years as to how electronic stuff can work during the test and then do weird things um, afterwards. So, um, anyway, um, strange stuff. So, Pope Francis, uh, we're, we're still in uh, St. Charles, by the way. And um, uh, I leave tomorrow, uh, heading for Sedalia, Missouri. I'll be doing stuff there in Sedalia. There's, the stuff's all on the calendar at the front page. Um, locations, times, stuff like that. Um, on uh, Wednesday night and Thursday night. And then I go to Kansas City, and we're doing stuff Friday night, Saturday night, I think, uh, and Sunday. And then I start the trip home, and it's going to be a long trip home, um, in the sense that I'm trying to do it in big chunks, so there'll be long days. Um, long days in the saddle, but that's uh, I've got to get back uh, so we can see the Messiah uh, with my grandkids, uh, and I'm looking forward to that. Anyway, um, so for those of you wondering where we are, and, and it's actually... I can see blue sky. I mean, it's getting dark already here, but had a lot of rain uh, over the past few days, and it's been windy and stuff like that. But uh, that's that's the Midwest, I guess. Um, a little bit different living in Arizona. So Pope Francis uh, was not well enough to deliver his own um, speech at the um, you know the place where all the people fly and burning fossil fuels call upon everybody else to stop using fossil fuels. Uh, what's it called? COP28 is the uh, is the thing. Uh, yeah, COP28. And uh, we are told that Pope Francis has called for the elimination of fossil fuels in a historic speech to the UN. Uh, he was suffering from a lung infection, was too unwell to deliver the speech. So it was given by Cardinal Pietro Perlin, the Vatican's Secretary of State. He said... Destruction of the environment is an offense against God, a sin that greatly endangers all human beings, especially the most vulnerable in our midst, and threatens to unleash a conflict between generations. Now, it is painfully, painfully, painfully obvious that Pope Francis is a liberation theologian. He is a complete leftist, and he is completely sold out to the climate fraud. And it is a fraud. It, it is easily demonstrated to be a fraud, but you, you don't see debates on it uh, because it is the narrative and there won't you're not allowed uh, to question these things and it won't be long until any speech like what I'm giving right now will be suppressed as well. But I want you to understand something. Um, he, he says, are we working for a culture of life or a culture of death? To all of you, I make this heartfelt appeal. Let us choose life. Now, here's the real problem. Well, there's a lot of problems here. Um, culture of life and culture of death is language that has been developed over the past number of decades in regards to the abortion issue. But it's obviously bigger than that. But by associating the abortion issue with the uh, fantasy, the fiction of 
carbon dioxide is is killing the earth and we're boiling the oceans and all the other idiocy I thought, which is simply untrue there is no evidence of it that when they try to produce evidence they're they're you know taking a chart that's this big and they they show you this part over here or they they ignore it it's just it is so plainly driven by money and power um it, it's it's just a narrative that has that is being used by the globalists to put you in a 15-minute concentration camp to make it impossible for you to travel, uh, to communicate with others, face-to-face uh, -face anyways, um, and to limit you so that the global elites will have the ability to crash the world's population, which is going to happen one way or the other, uh, crash the world's population, and they get to live, and all the rest of us either die or just serve them. Uh, and it's amazing. We can see these enslavers right now. They're right in front of us. We can see their faces. We know their names. And they're just allowed to get away with whatever they want to get away with because they have captured the educational system, which is now nothing but an indoctrination system. And those who have been indoctrinated just believe whatever they're told to believe. So the Pope is one of them. The head of the Roman Catholic Church. Now you can sit here and say, "Well, he's just a deceived old man and stuff like that." Okay, if you want to, if you want to say that, uh, I'm not sure that that's actually the case, in the sense that you know he's one of these global elites. But go ahead and, and take that route if you want. You have the Bishop of Rome associating with abortion. Now, hey, he's put people with clear pro-choice stances on Vatican commissions. In regards to abortion over the past couple of years. So he supports Father Martin and the LGBTQ stuff. And we see what's happening there. So is this is this part of you know a, a, a whole bunch of stuff that he's doing? Maybe. But the issue here is he's talking about, he's associating... Culture of death, which is a real thing. It's a vitally important thing. The problem is the LGBTQ plus movement is a part of the culture of death, and he is positive toward that. Positive in the sense of seeking to find uh, a way to be more inclusive and, and um, you know, that kind of terminology. Anyway, um, he's calling for the abolition of fossil fuels. Now, fossil fuels is, is a misleading term. Initially, it was thought that oil and things like that was, was the decaying uh, remains of animals that lived millions of years ago. We, we know that's not the case. We know that the earth actually, it's actually renewable, that, that the earth actually produces this kind of stuff. But you need to understand something, and this is something people do not understand. The advancements in medicine, education, travel, and the lifting up of so many peoples in third world countries to a level of uh, life and property and food that they never had before is due to the use of affordable sources of energy, specifically, quote unquote, fossil fuels, coal, oil, shale, uh, these, these types of things. These are affordable sources of energy. Solar and wind are not. 
they, you know, they wear out over time. They're extremely expensive. If it were not for government subsidies, in other words, your tax dollars, uh, for example, EVs. Um, the I saw a study recently that said that that the average EV, if it didn't have government subsidies subsidies behind it for its original cost, construction, charging stations, stuff like that, if it was if it if it was all that we had, which is what the government wants, um, the cost equivalency um, would be seventy seven dollars per gallon. That's that's what would be that would what it would cost in current fuel sources would be $77 per gallon, which means none of us could afford it. No one could travel, which is what they want. They don't want us traveling. If you can be limited to a, a gulag, uh, a concentration camp, they call them 15-minute cities. It's the same thing. Um, to where you can't travel any longer, you can't communicate, you can't meet with people. That's what they want. That's what tyrants always want. Um, look, look back at medieval Europe, <laughs> you know, people, people lived in 15 minute cities. They didn't travel more than seven miles any one direction from where they were born and they were serfs and they, they, they dug a pitiful living out of the ground and died of diseases and served the king and queen up in the castle or the Duke and the Duchess, depending on where you were. And that's what they want to get. So that's that's what these people are all about. That's that's where we're going, and the Pope's helping. Um, so, what, what I can't believe the Pope doesn't know this, but he, what he's saying is stop making energy so affordable. So who is most hurt by that? The very people he talks about all the time, the poor. I he, how can he not know this? that what he is saying would fundamentally lead to the massive diminishment of the quality of life of the poor. He's talking, well, we need to learn how to... Uh, yeah, the Pope also called for a decisive acceleration in energy efficiency. Well, that's nice. Renewable sources, eliminating fossil fuels, and educating people to do without them. We just need to educate you to become our serfs or just die, or live in abject poverty, but we have to save Mother Earth, and it's a sin if we don't. Now look, there's, there's lots of Protestant leftist nutballs out there too, but this guy is supposed to be the infallible vicar of Christ on Earth. Ah, oh, this isn't theology. Oh, saying something is sinful isn't theology? Hmm. I wonder how that works. But there you go. Um, this COP28, you know, we, we used to just laugh at this stuff because it would all, they, they'd frequently get snowed out. <laughs> you know, just, people couldn't get there because of, the, of how cold it was in places. And, and we just laughed. But we shouldn't have been laughing because these people want us in gulags. They want. They don't want me to have the freedom to travel around to these places and meet. No, 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 no. I'm killing the planet. Well, no, I'm not. That's just an abject lie. But once it's established in law and you can't even question it any longer, what an effective way to to lock everybody down. Um, 
Now, speaking of which, I'm seeing a bunch of stuff online about people uh, going into places and they're getting locked down and, and uh, it, it's coming again. And I've, I've said over and over again, you know, I know people are flying and doing their thing again. And here I am in my RV and people are like, wow, you're really stupid. You could be flying around the world again. Yeah, you know, I suppose, you know, we could have spent a whole lot of money to build back up my, uh, my access and all the rest of that kind of stuff. But I'm sitting here going, we didn't fix what happened in 2020 and 2021. Um... Stuff is still coming out. Stuff just came out from New Zealand. In fact, I read an article. They arrested a guy in New Zealand for publishing a study um, demonstrating the fatality rates from various batches of COVID-19 vaccines. He, 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 it's, it's a scholarly study, and they arrested him. And the people that force that stuff into our bodies, the massive number of young people who have been dying of strange cancers and cardiac issues and, and blood clots and all the rest of this kind of stuff, and it continues to happen, well, uh, we're just supposed to ignore all that. We're, no one's been held accountable for any of that. And they never will be. Not in this life. They will be. <laughs> there is a day coming. Acts 1731. Uh, they, they will be someday, but they're not right now. And they're still in charge. And so what's this new Chinese disease? Uh, white lung disease? Um, you'll notice the big thing they're pushing now is it goes after children. Because that that's COVID didn't do that. So it didn't really work real well. And so the new one, just in time for the 2024 election, is... Uh, White lung disease goes after kids. And I'm sorry if you can just sit there and go, well, you know, we never know. I mean, it could have happened. It could be. No. Um, yeah, uh, that's that's why I said from the beginning. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to keep my RV. And we're going to put the studio in there and because we ain't done. This, this isn't over with, with yet. And I jokingly keep saying to, to the folks who are flying. Okay, when you get locked down and when you can't get on that plane without that uh, magic uh, poison juice in your bloodstream uh, and all of a sudden you're looking at finding some other way of getting around, let me know. <laughs> I'll be happy to share what I've learned and uh, do some videos and get you up to speed faster than I got up to speed because I sort of had to learn things as we went along. So there you go. Um, that's uh, that's how it happens. Um Okay, uh, I, I had to, I, I had to make a decision as to where we were going to go today. Uh, the, there are two topics, and, and so I'm, the idea being probably later in the week, I'm assuming Wednesday or Thursday, um, we'll be able to do another program. Uh, tomorrow's going to be a travel day. And, um, and maybe even do two. We'll, we'll see. If I'm feeling, feeling up to it, maybe, maybe we can. One thing, and, and the problem is both of these topics take a fair amount of time for prep and preparation and, and things like that. Um, I have some videos. Jeff Durbin actually uh, 
linked me to them. They just popped up in his feed. And uh, they're from, uh, what was it? Uh, what was it called? Uh, St. Michael's Abbey. St. Michael's Abbey. And there's these guys dressed all in white. And um, they're really... They, okay, they're, they're condescending. They're, they're uh, statements about Roman Catholic belief, but they're responding to Protestant belief, but they're, they're sort of arrogant. Just, just to put it bluntly, they don't show much knowledge of the other side, what the other side has to say. And one of the topics that is addressed at one point, this rather portly, looks like bishop type guy, um, is talking about how Jerome had utterly obliterated this heretic long ago about the uh, uh, perpetual virginity of Mary, and 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 I'm sitting here going, okay, so we're we're talking about Helvidius. Um, vast majority of people have never read what Jerome wrote in response to Helvidius is one of his earlier works. There's actually interesting evidence that Jerome didn't continue to hold the the position that he held when he was younger, uh, maybe mature reflection later on. It, 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 minimally, he made a few comments that make you go, huh, I, I wonder if he's rethinking that at a later point in time. But there's just fascinating information uh, that, that demonstrates that the perspective that Jerome presented just is indefensible. It, it really honestly is indefensible and yet it is what is repeated over and over and over and over and over and over and over again and it's that's that's what this done this video oh Jerome answered that long long ago and we've just gone on from there but the reality is it's you know it's got a huge number of holes in it and um and of course they did the uh the, the Luther and Calvin thing as if they were central and studying any of this kind of stuff and um so we'll we'll, we'll try to get to some of that because i think it's i think it's important there's a lot of discussion of roman catholicism going on right now and i think that's a it's an important area to look at but so what we're going to do in the rest of this program the next last 40 minutes we have here is i have owed jared longshore a response uh to what he posted um Remember, on Reformation Day, uh, he posted an article about the New Covenant and children and stuff like that. I responded to that on the dividing line, and then he wrote a response to that. And I think he recorded a response to that as well. I just have the written portion here. And uh, I said at the time, well, you know, there's a number of things I'm trying to get to and getting ready to, to leave right now, so it's sort of hard to catch up with everything. So, um... And it's now uh, December, so if he does respond to me, he has to be really nice. If it was November, he could do whatever he wanted to do. Um, if you don't get that, don't worry about it. Um, <laughs> so I, I want to look at some of the stuff in the time we have. And uh, once again, when we're dealing with the issue of pedo-baptism, and of course... This is in the context of, you know, right now, the discussion of the Moscow mood and, and all the rest of this kind of stuff. And uh, 
we've had a lot of back and forth. Uh, remember last year, uh, Chocolate Knox had a guy on that was um, literally blamed transgenderism on Baptists, and uh, and uh, you know, so I I ended up on Cross Politic responding to that, and I did here on the dividing line, and and at least in that context, you end up having conversations with many. Let's just be honest. When when I criticize certain reformed names uh, out there, most of the time, they don't want to have that conversation. They're not going to allow a back and forth. And no matter what else you're going to say, at least when you're talking to the folks up in Moscow, they'll go, all right, let's talk about it. And let's, let's talk about it um, without canceling the other side and without all the, you know, calling councils and anathematizing and dragging up everything from history and everything else in the process. So you, you got to give credit where credit's due. And of course, they know um, where I stand and that I'm not going to, you know, sit back and go, oh, okay, fine, whatever, we'll just let that slide. Well, there's there's going to be a response. So um, when we work through some of this stuff, the the one of the main concerns I have and I don't want this response to go this direction. Most of the time, this conversation bogs down and dies in the footnotes of the Reformed Orthodox from the 17th and 18th and 19th centuries. Um, and I'll raise you a Witsius, and I'll I'll give you a Turretin versus your Owen, and and. That's why most people in the pew don't end up overly edified by the conversation is because they don't own Witsius or Owen uh, or Turretin. Um, or even when they read portions of these resources, they're left going, I thought this was written in English. <laughs> and, and, you know, half the time the, the sentence will be, a certain portion in English and a certain portion in Latin and a certain portion in some other language thrown in. And the, 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 the edification of the church factor tends to be very low when the conversation is not focused upon Scripture. And, you know, I try, I try to be consistent in this area. Um... This I would say the exact same thing in regards to well, for example, I, I've I, I haven't said this in the program, but I've said it to some other people. I intend to try to find the time, and again, I I know February's coming, um, and it's 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 only a matter of weeks away, literally a matter of days away, and I I do not at all feel like I've made much progress. Um, in preparation for all the debate. It's not that I'm not thinking about them um, and thinking about what directions I want to go and stuff, but as far as collection of all the research that I want and things like that, I don't feel like I've made a lot of progress yet. So doing these other topics may not be all that wise, but um, uh, I do want to uh, do uh, a review of uh, Jacob Trotter's article from the uh, Journal of Classical Theology, which I, if I'm thinking clearly is a brand new thing, uh, 
I'm, I'm, maybe it's there's a lot of groups that use that phraseology, but I think this is a fairly new one uh, on inseparable operations and talk about the difference between uh, hard ISO and soft ISO um, and you know the importance of the unity of the divine persons in the accomplishment of salvation, the working out of the divine decree, but at the same time, the danger of adopting a philosophical framework that then destroys the reality of the biblical revelation of the divine persons and their and their uh, interaction with each other, and I and I, th I think produces a sterile, um, just far from from you know the people in the pew when they're reading their Bible, they're reading about the son talking about the father and the interaction and the transfiguration and the high priestly prayer. And, and, and they're seeing all of this and they go to the epistles and there's this, this, this clear recognition of, of who the father is and who the son is and who the spirit is and the roles they've taken and, and our interaction with them. And, and it's so vital and it's beautiful and it's astonishing that God would, would condescend to reveal himself in this way and to, and to be a, you know, intimately connected to his creation in this fashion and to, and to unite the elect unto the Son in a way that we're not united to the Spirit or the Father. And, and then this philosophical system comes along and says, yeah, actually the only way you can tell the difference between the Father, Son, and Spirit is by this theological speculation about how they relate to each other in eternity past and no, we can't show you any of this in Scripture whatsoever. And no, we can't show you that the apostles actually believe in this, or they would have even understood what we were talking about. But we're gonna we're gonna say that this is the necessary thing to maintain orthodoxy and all the rest of it. And so, uh, you know, for years and years and years, I've felt that, and anybody who's read my book on the Trinity knows, I want people to love the Trinity. I want people to to be uh, to, to be enraptured by the revelation God has given to us. And when I see that being endangered by the rise of a uh, academic philosophicalism, um, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say something about it. And, um, but I'm gonna do it on the basis of scripture. That's, that's what we've been doing for a long time. And so my response to Jared, likewise, is, is not to, uh, you know, so you want to quote a Witsius, I'll raise you an Owen or something. I mean, that doesn't, that doesn't do anything. There are certain people that that's where they live. That's, that's just what they do all day long and more power to you. But um, I, you know, try to get out amongst the people <laughs> instead of just um, in those, you know, Facebook groups. And so we're going to be looking at specific scriptural issues that are raised by the things that Jared said. Like I said, I'm, I'm concerned about some of the stuff that said, because I, I saw a link and I went ahead and I've, I eventually found it where on cross politic, um, Jared had made the statement when a Christian husband and wife conceive a child, the church grows. And when I hear that, what I hear as the background presupposition to that 
is that to be a covenant child is to be promised to be of the elect. And that hence, if uh, that, that covenant child will experience the divine work of regeneration and the gift of faith at some time in their life, this is the promise of God. Every child of two Christians is themselves a true Christian, will be regenerate, and are of the elect. That doesn't mean that the elect is limited only to the offspring of Christians, but the idea, I think, for many people is that that is what becomes normative. That it couldn't have, it couldn't have been the case initially in the early church, obviously. Um, but that over time, it would become the normative way. And you can look around and go, well, it does seem that most of the people uh, who are Christians um, come from a place where they had that as part of their background. Of course, you also, these days in our society, a lot of the people who have abandoned Christianity um, had that as their background as well and were baptized as infants. Um, so that's something to keep in mind uh, too. So anyway, we're not going to get anywhere because I haven't read anything yet here. Uh, early on, he says in his article, uh, this is uh, for James White about those children in the New Covenant, uh, Reformation, Revival, blog. Uh, the nub of the issue is this. The Credo-Baptist position says that the New Covenant is so unlike the Old and so much better that each and every member of the New Covenant is actively regenerate, unlike the Old when children were included. The Pedobaptist position says the New Covenant is unlike the Old and better by far, but such that the inclusion of children in the Covenant remains old and new. Now you'll notice there's no addressing there the nature of covenant children. And um, I'd really be interested in knowing, uh, I'm sure Jared has read Pierre Marcel, would Jared agree with the idea that, that Marcel expresses that covenant children, because of their covenant nature, um, have the effect of original sin, in essence, canceled for them so that they are almost like a new Adam. Um, it, it, what, what is a covenant child? What is the, the spiritual difference? And is there a, a fundamental promise? Because I hear all the time, it's, it's a promise to you and to your children. Now, if, that's from, if that's from Acts, it's to you and your children, the Jews, and to all who are far off, the Gentiles, as many as the Lord our God should call to himself. But if we need to go back over that, that passage teaches divine election, um, that the Jews are not cast off in regards to being able to have faith in Christ. That's what you and your children is. That's the Jews. Um, but it's talking about divine election. And it is not a promise that to you, if you're a believer, and your children will become believers. Then I don't know what you do with those who are far off. Um, that's not what it's saying. And if we need to go there... We can definitely do that on the basis of the text. It's very, very important. Uh, then he talks about the fact that, you know, I, when I responded, I said, look, my concern is if you take most of the Pado-Baptist interpretations of Hebrews 8 and the nature of the New Covenant and 
the writer of Hebrews utilization of Jeremiah 31 in Hebrews chapter 8 as a linchpin of his argument. He has in chapter 7 said that Christ, because of his priesthood, which he holds permanently, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw nigh unto God by him. So he has he has demonstrated that in Christ we have something that the old priest did not have, and that hence the old priest could not save to the uttermost because they are hindered by death, whereas Christ is able to save the uttermost because he intercedes for a specific people, and his intercession is absolutely effective. Now, I, I would hope so, so my argument is, Hebrews, it's an apologetic, there's nothing to go back to, and the supremacy of Christ, starting in chapter 1, this is Yahweh in human flesh. This is incarnational language. And then this, eventually the concept of the priesthood is brought in. Um, the priesthood and Melchizedek and, and everything else comes together. So that by the time you get to chapter 8, you have those as backgrounds. You have these amazing things that have been done in Christ, who Christ is. These are the backgrounds. Now you have the mediatorial work and then the proof that is provided by the writer from Jeremiah 31 is chapter 7, he is able to save Pantelis to the uttermost. Pantelis. I have it. I was actually going to think about putting it up. Um, we will maybe in a second. Um, but if you want to take a look at it specifically in Hebrews 7, 25, therefore he is able, dunitai, sudzine, to save aista panteles, completely those who draw nigh through him to God because he ever lives to make intercession who pair tone for them specifically. So the Hebrews 8, Jeremiah 31 citation is providing a uh, Old Testament support for the assertion of the perfection of the work of the high priest, Jesus. And then, obviously, and this is, this is the whole argument about the nature of the atonement, that atoning work is intimately connected with the intercessory work. And so what does this intercessory work, which results in the Pantales complete salvation of those who draw nigh unto God through him, who is he interceding for? It says, he always lives to make intercession for them. There's a specific people here. These are the elect. And so there is perfect consistency that in the next chapter, when he provides this extensive quotation from Jeremiah 31, that what you're going to see there is the perfection of Christ's work of atonement and intercession. What's the result of having a better mediator? 
What's the result of having a better high priest with better promises and a better covenant? Well, the, the assertion is made in Hebrews 7, perfection of salvation. He, because he continues forever, holds the priesthood permanently, he is able to save forever to completion a certain people because he lives, always lives to make intercession for them. So I would argue that when I'm looking at Hebrews chapter 8, I'm not walking into this going, well, okay, it's time for the Beto baptism argument again. No, that's, that's not where the writer of the Hebrews is. But what he is doing is he has made an assertion in chapter 7, he's backing it up in 8, and then he's going to say in chapter, in chapter 9, he has obtained eternal salvation. These are things that could not be said under the old system, and therefore, when people are saying, come back, come back, come back, forget about this stuff, here's the foundation of saying there's nothing to come back to because he has actually accomplished what clearly, in fulfillment, had been prophesied about what the Messiah was going to do and, and things like that. So, I would argue that when we look at chapter 8, and I say, you know, it says they will all, from the least to the greatest of them, they will all know God. Their sins have been forgiven. Um, this is the scriptural foundation for the assertion was made in chapter 7. And if we go, well, but that doesn't mean they're all regenerate. <laughs> that, 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 that doesn't mean that they all really know God. It's just that more of them do. How does that fit with Hebrews 7, 24, and 25? How is that Pantales? Because there were, there, there were people who knew God under the Old Covenant. Now, the argument is, what was it because of the Old Covenant? I don't want to... That's not the language of Hebrews, and that's where we jump off into stuff where we, we never end up getting out of the weeds. I want to stick with the Bible. I... I do that with the Trinity, I do that with Reformed theology and, and predestination election, and and I do it with paedobaptism too, and it drives some of you crazy, but sorry, just the way we do things around here. So, having said all of that, um, Jared says, in short, nothing I've proposed destroys the apologetic argument of Hebrews because I, with James and Paul, could have said loud and clear to Jim Bob, who's introduced before him, you can't go back to the Old Covenant because there is nothing to go back to. Okay. He says there are three alternatives for not going back. And the three alternatives he gives is, one, don't go back to the Old Covenant because it never saved in the first place and it is vanishing. Two, don't go back to the Old Covenant because the New Covenant saves each and every one of its members, whereas the Old only saved a few of its members and the Old is vanishing. Or three, don't go back to the Old Covenant for though it saved some of its members, it indeed is vanishing and the New Covenant is far better. And so... He would say, if I understand him rightly, James is number two, I am number three, and the 1689 Federalists are number one. And again, I, I find this is a distraction from the real issue. Um, and I find the three options to have missed the point. Um, they're relevant, obviously. Yeah, they're, they're, they're relevant. But they've missed the one point. And the one point is the perfection of the work of Christ. 
because these are all focused upon what's the result of these things, whereas the argument of Hebrews is he is able to save Aista Pantales, Pantales, get it eventually, um, completely and forever because he ever lives to make intercession. I think the clarity on the issue can be derived from sticking with the biblical language and going, who does Christ intercede for? It seems that the author to the Hebrews is making a connection between those for whom Christ intercedes and those who are the members of the New Covenant in Hebrews chapter 8, who, as a result of his work, do not need to teach one another, know the Lord. They all know him. Their sins are forgiven. The law is written upon their hearts. Not the law is written upon more of their hearts, but the law is written upon their hearts. That's a fulfillment of this new covenant with the better promises and the better mediator who is interceding for a specific people. And so that's where I go to my Reformed Pedo-Baptist brethren. I see a major inconsistency. I made this argument when I debated the late Greg Strawbridge. I see a major inconsistency between your doctrine of election and your doctrine of baptism, and I think it came about via history, not via exegesis. It came about via history. You can see it when... Uh, Ulrich Zwingli's students end up debating him before the, the council in Zurich and getting kicked out. But they're saying, hey, Ulrich, um, what you're saying would seem to lead to a believer's baptism perspective. And what Zwingli does is because of the princes and because of politics, he goes that direction. And I would argue, whether you, you go with with Bollinger or Calvin uh, as first people, whether you go to even an Anabaptist, the point is that at that point in time, the reason for the development of the covenantal view of paedobaptism that is now held with modifications by various people and with a spectrum, let's be honest, uh, a spectrum that goes all the way into sacerdotalism. Um, but the the... Westminsterian, and there's different understandings even amongst people who hold the Westminster on this, uh, the Westminsterian perspective um, is still a theological novum in church history. This is not, when you look at the development and the rise of infant baptism in the church, um, this was not how they understood it. This was not why it was initially practiced. It was practiced for different reasons at different times, but it wasn't for this reason. And when it became established, eventually, uh, as the standard perspective, it was not established on the basis of Calvin's eventual understanding or what you have in the Westminster. They're theological novums. They're new things. And they didn't come from exegesis. And you can go back. I would imagine if you use the transcripts thing at aomin.org, the transcripts, you can go back to basically everything I have recorded for public consumption now 
1998 onwards. Um, and I may have said it before then, but that's a long enough time. It's 25 years, quarter of a century. Uh, I have said, uh, you know, over and over again, one of my favorite theologians in the whole world is John Calvin. I know he would have kicked me out of Geneva. I know that. And I still love reading his stuff, but I have said all along, I love the Institutes. And I've read the shorter version and the final 1559 Latin, which is what most of us use. And he did a French version after that. But anyway, um, but you get to book four and you get to this material and things change. I can see the change myself. And so I greatly respect a man that I think was influenced by his times and influenced by these sources. And that's where it came from. Um, so for, for me, this is, this is about consistency of exegesis. And for us reformed folks, I believe that who we baptize should be impacted and why we baptize should be impacted by what we believe about the atonement and about the intercessory work of Christ. They are not something over here and something over here. They should be, we should be able to bring those things together and find a consistency. And I would, I'm simply suggesting to you that from what I see, aside from the variations that I see amongst Presbyterians, um, the idea of the covenant child is the covenant child interceded for in the new covenant. When Jared says, when a uh, Christian husband and wife conceive a child, the church grows, does that mean that child is being interceded for in the same way that Jared is. And, and, and I don't know if the 1 Corinthians 7 passage is behind any of this. I, I honestly, honestly, honestly say to my Reformed Pado-Baptist brethren, if a liberal like Paul K. Jewett could put the standard Pado-Baptist interpretation of 1 Corinthians chapter 7 through the paper shredder, the, the wood chipper. Let's, let's, let's go big. Paper shredders are small. Let's go big. Through the wood chipper that he did years and years and years ago. Um, I, I just... That, that is one argument that every time I, I really have to go, oh Lord, give me patience, because I just can't believe that people who can argue with such clarity on election and predestination and the, the glories of the sovereign eternal decree of God could then turn to a section where Paul's answering questions about, about mixed marriages because the, the gospel's going out and sometimes God didn't save uh, the, the other person in the marriage. Um, it's about mixed marriages and it's about the, 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 the fact that your, your children are still your children. They are holy. They're not regenerated, and they're not turned into covenant members or something. He's, it's not even what he's talking about. It's just astonishing to me that, that people go there with that passage. I mean, 
I don't think we've ever actually walked through Jewett's argument. You know, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I need to take a look at it. Um, yeah, I might. I mean, take 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 a look at the uh, transcripts page and see if if we haven't uh, done that at some point. I know that I have in some context. I don't know if it was on the dividing line, but I'll have to take a look. I, I, I don't know. Wow, it must be a little nippy outside uh, because I think for the first time ever during the dividing line, even though I have a space heater on over there, um, which I shouldn't have on now that I think about it because it's popped this circuit a few times. But uh, I think the, uh, the, the propane heat uh, in the unit here, which is highly effective, is about to kick on. So you might hear something in the background. And it's set at 57. So I'm rather comfortable in uh, this, uh, this Kuji. Uh, it's a thick one, too. So it, it is, my hands are a little bit on the cold side. But yeah, it's, it's life outside of Phoenix. It's, uh, it's different. Anyway, so if you hear that, don't worry about it. All right, I continue on here because I haven't even gotten to his responses yet. And we've covered a lot of stuff already. But he says, uh, but I would simply point out the central apologetic argument is intact. There's no going back to the old covenant because there's nothing to go back to. As Paul writes, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. Was becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Okay. All right. But my argument is he quotes Hebrews 8. It's between 7, 24, and 25 and 9, 10 through 11 where he's making the assertion that it is Christ who has obtained eternal redemption. And so the argument is Christ actually is a perfect mediator. So what does Jesus mediate to the covenant child who isn't regenerate? What, what is it that is mediated? And I've, like I said, I've, I've had Presbyterian brother before say he mediates wrath. And, and I, I just go, uh, hey. hi, I'm live on the dividing line right now. And so are you. Oh, sorry. Okay, never mind. <laughs> no, no, no. That's okay. No, 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 never. It's okay. No, everyone knows, I'm, everyone knows I'm live. So um, that's cool. And I'm not going to put you on. Don't worry. I'm just holding the phone. But... Uh, I, I'm seeing Dini right now, and what it, and 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 Dini's um, probably are they really interested in all the stuff that you have to have out because we have a leak under the sink? Isn't it amazing when when you go out of town? That's when stuff happens. So, so hi Dini. I just I guess you wanted me to see Dini. So well, yeah, that. But I also want to tell you that they were both on the kitchen deal when I was outside. Oh, that's sweet. That's really yeah. cool. All right, all right. Well, okay. I'll give you a call right. back later. I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna have dinner with Ken. So. Okay, have fun. Uh, all right, we'll bye. see you. Bye-bye. <laughs> I really appreciate the fact that my dear wife, um, she knows how much I'm missing. We adopted, some of you don't know, we adopted uh, we adopted the kitten, Dini. Most of you heard about that. And then I adopted a little tortie, a female tortie, two and a half years old from PetSmart. And I shouldn't have done that, <laughs> but I did. And I, I don't feel badly that she was she had been stuck in that cage for six and a half weeks and uh, and I love her. Her name's Sophie and she's really sweet and she really loves me. I hope she won't forget me by the time I get back. But she takes the time to do FaceTime with me so I can see the kitties and I can talk to them and maybe they'll hear my voice and stuff like that. It's just how you you know my, my wife doesn't get to travel with me. I'm not sure she would really enjoy it. Um, but in this time in our life, she's taking care of her mom. 
Uh, she's very important in taking care of her mom. She only lives about uh, nine miles from us. And so Kelly knows everything about every doctor in Sun City now, which may be good for us in a few years. <laughs> just, just already ready to go. Um, but I really appreciate uh, that. And she didn't know I was doing the dividing line right now. So we just did a live and I got to see Dini. Uh, he's getting huge. I mean, he doesn't look much like a kitten anymore. He's almost six months old now. So anyhow, uh, we'll, we can go a few minutes late if I have to, to make up for that. Right in the middle of that important conversation about Reformed theology. Oh, hi, dear. How are you? Um, but <laughs> that's fine. I, um, it was vibrating. So I'm like, what am I, I going to do? I, I wasn't. All right. We continue on. Um, so then what he does is um, he, he gives a nice summary of my position, but I want to, I think it'd be useful to comment on a couple of these things. Um, and honestly, um, I'll tell you what, if you're in Twitter, and, and I, I prefer Twitter to Facebook a thousand times, I'd like to hear back from you all. Do, do you want me to invest this kind of time in going this deep into interaction on this subject. I know, I obviously know there's going to be people, no, don't care. I'd rather talk about the Trinity, something like that. But just in general, um, I'd, I'd appreciate some feedback uh, on, on Twitter, um, if you're there, uh, as to how you feel about that. Um, and whether you want me to invest that kind of time or whether like like the next dividing line should i continue this or should i go into a discussion of jerome helvidius and the um perpetual virginity of mary i might do both like i said i might have time for more than one program uh this week um but i'd be interested in knowing uh, it would be something that would be helpful to me to gauge where your interest is so what he does is he 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 says, let me strongman James' point here. It is thusly. Hebrews 10.10 says, and by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering the body of Jesus Christ once for all. First, James would say, this speaks of a better sacrifice, the body of Jesus Christ, instead of the blood of bulls and goats. The new covenant involves the sacrifice of Christ himself. Now see, Jared was once on our side. So, um, you mean to tell me that the covenant which pertains to such a better sacrifice will not save all of its members, bucko. James wouldn't really say bucko, but if I would, if I were him, and I'm the one doing the strong manning, so take that, better sacrifice. Well, I think I might say bucko. Uh, I might say to him in a debate, so do you really believe bucko? But you see, what I would say is, this better sacrifice is connected to the intercession that Christ makes before the Father. And so this is plainly about the elect of God. And so one of my questions would be to Jared Bucko, um, are all children that are conceived by a Christian husband and wife of the elect? Is is that is that an argument that you would actually make? That there is that no Christian couple has ever had a child uh, that would die outside of Christ. Because if you're going to say that, you're going to basically have to say then there's been a whole lot of 
people who thought they were Christians who weren't. Um, you know, we could look we could look at Old Testament examples, but you know, I would just okay. Let, let's just answer that question: Are all Christian children, children conceived by a Christian husband and wife of the elect? Because my argument is Christ intercedes only for his people. Trinitarian harmony in the gospel. The father elects, the son dies for, they're united to him, so he dies for them, he intercedes for them before the father, which is involved with their, I mean, I mean his mere presence before the father as their representative is the substance of that intercession. It's the finished work of his, it's the finished nature of his work. And then the Father and the Son send the Spirit to regenerate specifically those elect people at the time that the decree of God says that's going to happen. Perfect harmony, Father, Son, and Spirit in the salvation of the elect. So that makes sense in my position. Um, there is consistency in who Christ intercedes for. Christ is not, never fails in his intercession. You don't have the Father not willing the salvation of anyone for whom Christ intercedes. So, if that's true, then to whom should we give the sign of that new covenant, that better covenant, with this better mediator? Should we give the sign of the new covenant to someone that Christ will not be mediating eternal salvation to. Now you might say, well, you you do. You've, you've baptized people who turn out to, out to be apostates. Okay, that's true. And that means that they lied to us. Okay, but what is the intention? Is it, do we believe that there is a promise that every child of a Christian couple is of the elect, and hence we'll have Christ interceding for them. There's, that's a question. That's a question. Uh, second, who in tarnation is the we? Do you mean to tell me that the we is a covenant people, only some of whom will go to heaven? Why does the text not say, and by that will some of us uh by that will, some of us have been sanctified and others have not. So that's the idea of the mixed covenant under the old, but the new covenant involves everyone. Uh, everyone has their sins forgiven. Everyone has the law written upon their heart. So does every child born of, a, of Christian parents have the law written upon their heart? And is there not something very special? about the way that Christians, regenerate believers, have the law written on their heart. That's, I think, vitally important as well. Third, zooming out a bit from this text, the context clearly speaks of better promises. He is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. But you sprinklers of infants leave the new covenant promises no better than the old, for the promises of both, according to you, don't secure each and every member. Well, that's true, but my focus isn't so much on that, as, but as why that is. Why is it that it doesn't secure each and every member 
in the Paedo-Baptist perspective, in light of he is able to save to the uttermost those drawn nigh to God by him, seeing he ever lives to make intercession for them. So there is the consistency of who's being interceded for. This is the result of their being interceded for. They are the elect. Therefore, chapter 9, he has obtained eternal salvation. And then, chapter 10, by this one will we, we are perfected. So you have this consistency all the way through. Most of my Paedo-Baptist brethren will say, no, um, either these, this is what it will be eventually down the road, um, or literally, I have literally had, and they're my brothers, I love them, but I can't follow them here at all, have literally said, yes, what Christ mediates to those who receive the covenant sign, but who are not of the elect, is wrath. He mediates wrath to them, judges them. Um, and, and I go, that's not the new covenant. That's not, he, that's not Hebrews uh, uh, 8. That's not the fulfillment from Jeremiah 31. And that's not the consistency from Hebrews 7, 8, 9, 10. Um, fourth, the same Hebrews 8, 6 says that Christ has obtained a more excellent mediatorial ministry but as with his sacrifice shall this mediator who is Christ himself not effectively mediate each and every one of his new covenant people unto salvation. New covenant people, now in, in this way of putting it, we're talking about the elect, right? If not, what makes his more excellent mediatorial ministry more excellent? Amen. Amen. That's, yep, there you go. Uh, fifth, that same Hebrews 8, 6 says the new covenant Christ mediates is better but it's not seemed that much better to me if you can slip out of this new covenant bond just like you could the old. Well, more so, more what I would say is that you had uh, clear you you had clear covenant sign bearers who clearly did not have circumcised hearts, so they bore the external sign that had to do with their being part of a ethnos. Um, and what you have with the new covenant is you have spiritual circumcision. You have the law being written upon the heart. The very thing that happened under the old, but it was not the universal experience under the old. And that's what they were being told to come back to. And the point of the new is, why go back to that? Because the better promises, better mediator is all wrapped up in this Hebrews chapter 1, where in verses 10 through 12, Psalm 102, 25 through 27 is quoted, it's Yahweh, the unchangeable God, who has become flesh. That's why it has to be so much better. Not just in, oh yeah, it's, it's, it's really nice. It's much, much, much better. No, it is better in that it is, he has, he, by this one will, he has perfected. That's where the issue is. Um, so last thing that we'll have time to do here. Um, by way of summary, the apologetic argument, according to James, I understand him, is not merely that you should not go back to the Old Covenant, but there is anything to go back to, but it is also that you should not go back to the Old Covenant because the New Covenant sacrifice is better, sanctifying each and every member, one, the New Covenant people are better, each and every one of them being actively regenerate. 
Two, the New Covenant promises are better, ensuring the active regeneration of each and every member. Three, the New Covenant mediatorial ministry is better, ensuring that Christ mediates such that each and every New Covenant member goes to heaven because they are united with him. And four, and the New Covenant itself is better, it being designed as a bond that cannot be unbounded by a single New Covenant member because of the decree of God for the elect. The elect are united with Christ. So you have the harmony of the Father's uh, election, the Son's dying for and interceding for, the Spirit's coming and applying, triune God accomplishing all these things um, in the salvation of God of the elect. And that's who is in the New Covenant. That's why they all know him from the least to the greatest of them. That's what election is. And that's what the Spirit accomplishes. So uh, there you go. Uh, and then his reply begins uh, after that. I have lots of colorful stuff noted here uh, to get into. And we'll see if we do that in the next program or the program thereafter. Um, we'll see. Um, but I have it here and we'll be able to pick up at that uh, particular point. And again, I just hope that uh, this kind of stuff is um, is useful. Um and that you want to get into this this area of, of conversation, discussion, and that it's being done between Christians, please. Um, it, it, I enjoy this kind of, of conversation. I mean, it can't go on forever. It just keeps getting longer and longer and longer. And I enjoy have, bringing other people into it. And it just seems to me that, especially amongst us Reformed, this should be something that we are we are able to do and willing to do without anger and vitriol and cancellation and all stuff that comes along with it. Um, but that just isn't my experience with a lot of people in reformdom um, these days, especially if you start talking about someone named um, Thomas Aquinas or you start talking about uh, hard simplicity, soft simplicity, hard ISO, soft ISO. It just seems like certain people, man, we're just going to cancel you. We're just going to tell people you're not Orthodox anymore. Or you never were. Or you're just ignorant and stuff like that. It's uh, sort of sad, but uh, that's that's how that goes. Um, anyway, uh, thanks for watching The Dividing Line. Uh, travel day tomorrow. Pray for traveling mercies. And we'll see you next time.